0: Um, we'll be in Matthew 11, 1 through 19, okay, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like the children sitting in the marketplace and calling to the to their playmates. We played the flute for you. We You did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he was a demon, or he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You guys can be seated. Let's pray.
1: Lord, now, as we turn to your word, I ask in the mighty name of Jesus that you would stir our affections for Jesus, that we would look on at his heart for a generation and be amazed, that we would see the encouragement he gives, and God, let that be what we need to continue on. I pray for those who might be opposed to Christ or doubting, Lord, that you would show them and reveal to them who you are, the truth of who you are from your word. I pray, God, that if there's anything that I plan on saying that is not um, helpful, that you would keep me from saying it. That everything I say would be from you. Everything I say would be for Christ's glory. I pray for us all now. That as we look at your word. That we would find ourselves. Stunned. By the beauty and majesty of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Um, We're in Matthew chapter 11. And uh, we haven't been in it in a while, so what I want to do is to give us just a little bit of understanding of what's going on, and then we'll we'll pick up at eleven, chapter one. <coughs> so uh, here's what's going on. Uh, look in verse one for me, and and you'll be able to understand kind of uh, the previous little bit of what's going on. It says in verse one, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, so we see. That in the previous chapter, uh, where mine's all read, almost all of chapter 10, there was a large portion of instruction given by Jesus to his disciples. And it says this, When he had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So let's, let's use that verse as a quick review. We know that he just had given some instruction, and then after he gave that instruction, he went and started teaching and preaching. What was the instruction, and what was the content of the instruction? The very thing that he's doing. If you look at the end of 9 you see in verse 36 that he saw crowds, he looked out, he had compassion on them, and he knew that they were like sheep without a shepherd. He knew that these people he's looking at did not know Jesus, and so for the rest of 10, he is sending out these 12 disciples. We can see in verse 10.1, he calls the 12 disciples to him, he's going to give them some instruction, and then you can see in 10.5, Jesus is going to send them out, instructing them, and then he gives them the rest of the chapter of instructions. And basically those instructions are, this is how you need to go be a missionary for me now here's the most amazing thing about jesus not thee but one of them is that uh because he's got lots of amazing things In verse one it says that after he had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples he didn't kind of just turn them loose and say go get them i'm gonna go hang out here come tell me how things are going it says that he went on from there to do the very thing that he sent them to do. To teach and preach in the cities. Jesus is the model leader. He lives out in his entire life the exact thing that he tells us to do. He tells them to go do mission and ministry. And then he goes and he does the very same thing. He wasn't sitting back, leaving it all on their shoulders, not doing anything. So what we're going to see here um, is... From that, going on from 2 through 19, Jesus is going to go do the very same thing that disciples... We have no idea what what the outcome was for the disciples. It doesn't tell us. But we do know that Jesus is going out to do ministry. And as he's going out to do ministry, he's going to have some opposition right here in the beginning. Uh, And that's what we're going to look at here. Uh, in 2 through 19, or 1 through 19, is this opposition that's, com- that's coming. And hopefully, as you're seeing the opposition that's coming to Jesus and the answers that He's giving, that we'll, we'll take those things and we'll say, okay... When opposition comes to Christ, here are some of the things that happens. When opposition comes to me, these are some of the applications or thoughts I can have. That's, that's kind of the idea of what we're going to do. And there's, there's, we're going to break it up into three sections. These three sections, um, you know, after spending some time, you'll, you'll be able to see them right away. They're pretty obvious. Uh, and it, Here's the deal. Uh, John the Baptist is in prison and he hears, we kind of read it already, but John the Baptist hears that uh, <coughs> Jesus... Is, is, is doing his work, and remember John the Baptist baptized Jesus in, in chapter three, but it 's not happening the way he thought he thought all right i 'm going to baptize Jesus in chapter three, and then and I know he 's not thinking in chapters, but he's and, and after he baptizes, then Jesus is supposed to set up the kingdom and then it 's just supposed to judgment's supposed to come to the pagans, and everything 's supposed to go awesome, and that 's the way it 's supposed to happen, but it 's not happening that way John is it's experiencing here some moments of doubt. Are you the Messiah? Or are you not? Because I thought it was going to happen differently. And so, legitimate doubt. I'm not going to mis, um, you know downplay it at all. And so, he sends some of his disciples because he's in prison. John has some disciples. He sends them to Jesus to ask the question. And so, what we're going to see in this in this set of verses is how that plays out. Now, here's we're going to see three things. The first thing that we're going to see in verses 1 through 6 is um, Jesus, as the disciples, John's disciples ask him questions, he's going, to, he's going to say something. These are the words for John the Baptist. These are the words that are for John the Baptist. Or, really, since John the Baptist is a doubter, these are the words for anybody that's a doubter. These are words for anybody that might be experiencing moments of doubt. And the way each one of these three sections are going to look is this. Um you're going to have uh, this first part where he's, he's, he's telling some uh, words to the doubters. You can see right there, and, and mine are, are red, but maybe yours aren't red, in verses 4 and 5, it's red. And right there in, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus is going to quote the Old Testament. And then at the very end in, chapter, I'm sorry, in, chapter, in verse 6, it says, And blessed is the one. Then right there in verse 6, Jesus is ending this section with a beatitude. So each section is going to kind of have that same feel. He's going to have a quote in the middle and then he's going to end it with something. In the first section he has a quote there in verses 4 and 5 and he ends it, the section, with a beatitude. In the next section, 7 through 15, Jesus is going to not just talk have a word for John the Baptist, but he's going to turn to the crowds. John the Baptist's disciples leave. He's going to have a word about John the Baptist. And as he has a word about John the Baptist, a quote's going to follow there. You can see it right there in verse 10. There's a quote. And then he's going to end this section in verse 15 um, with a metaphor. He who has ears, let him hear. So he ends it. And then the next section, same kind of thing. Um, He has a word for John the Baptist. He has a word about John the Baptist. And this time he has a word for the crowd, and then he has a quote right there in verse 17. And he ends it right there where it says, yet wisdom is justified. He ends it with a proverb. So he ends it with something different each time. He ends it with a beatitude. ends it with a metaphor. ends it with a proverb. But these three sections all have this kind of same feel where there's a quote and it ends with something. And as we see that, that kind of plays out for us our little outline. And we see, okay, there's, there's three things that we're going to draw out of these th- texts uh, out of these verses, where we can see when opposition comes, this is how it's going to work. That's the whole outline, so now all you got to do is just listen, all right? So we'll, let's look at verse 2, and uh, let's kind of walk through this, and I want you to see. This, this, verses 1 through 6 is the disciples come, and John uh, is wondering what's going on, and Jesus has a word for John, for the doubters. Uh, maybe you experience times of doubt, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, Uh, there's always, in all of us, times of doubt sometimes. Legitimate doubt. And I'm not trying to say John's not a doubter. He's actually really doubting here. And it says this, Now when John heard in prison, that's very key, it's not happening the way he thought. He thought Jesus was going to roll out the judgment and everything's going to be fine. And he's in prison. He's like, it's not happening the way I thought. I'm in prison. I don't want to be in prison. Um, And we know in in chapter 14, he's going to be killed. And it says, He heard... In prison about the deeds of Christ. Uh, uh, some of your versions might say the works of Christ. And this this works of Christ that John's hearing is really kind of a triple threat. We see in verses, I'm sorry, chapters five through seven, the deeds of Christ are his amazing teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We see in chapters eight and nine, the second one are these amazing healings that Jesus is doing. And we see in chapter ten, the triple threat where he's Sending people on mission. He has amazing teaching. He's doing some amazing healings. And he's living a life of sending people on mission. So that's, these are the deeds of Christ that are being heard. John the Baptist is hearing this. And it says, he sent word by his disciples. Amazingly enough, John the Baptist had disciples. Now, this should amaze you. Like, let's say we all got up right now and we went downstairs and we went down to the kids area and there's little Johnny. And little Johnny's wearing animal skins. Hey, Johnny, how you doing? What you, what you wearing, animal skins? Well, how do you like the animal skins? They're good. I killed them myself, and I, I thought I'd put them on. Oh, okay. Um, that's interesting. What what you eating, Johnny? Bugs. Bugs and locusts. Nah, you can keep your goldfish. I'm going to eat bugs and locusts. Okay, Johnny, you're, you're an interesting fella. No one's really ever going to wa- want to play with you in your, in your sandbox. So the thing here is, that's John the Baptist. That's him. He's got followers. Eccentric as he is, he's got people following him. So what is it? Well, we're going to see in later on what it is. That he has a deep, deep devotion for the Lord. A deep devotion for the Lord. And it says this He has disciples following him. And here comes John the Baptist's legitimate question as a doubter. Perhaps you feel this sometimes. He says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I was there, I baptized you, I heard the Father speak. I was baptized, the son, and I saw the Holy Spirit descend like the the whole trinity's there. It's supposed to happen. I believe that you're the Messiah, but I'm experiencing something of doubt right now. I mean, John the Baptist baptized Jesus and experienced the entire trinity, and he has a moment of doubt. So it's okay for you. Don't think it's not okay. And he says this, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John here has real doubt. Doubt is not unbelief. Don't confuse the two. Doubt is not unbelief. It's doubt. It's a moment like all of us as Christians have. And he's having this thought. He's in prison. And he's wondering, where's the judgment? Why am I in prison if you're the Messiah? I don't understand. Real moments of doubt. And so Jesus, as kind as he is, wants to answer John who's experiencing this moment of doubt. And he he does the same for you. Where does he do this? And don't miss this. Whenever you have a doubt, you need for someone to speak the word of God over you. It, don't go to someone and ask them to you know, give you feeling-oriented statements. You need the word. When you have moments of doubt, you come to the word and you say, Lord, I'm, I'm experiencing, not unbelief, but doubt. Help me here. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus gives John the Baptist the word. And we can see there's a quote, as I said, in verses 4 and 5. It's a quote, and it's a series of quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 61. He's giving him some different quotes. And this is what he says in verses 4 and 5. It says, and Jesus answered, go and tell John. He's talking to John's disciples. Just imagine how crazy they were. Um, Who knows? Uh, And he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. If if he stopped right there, that's all he needed to say. Go tell John what you hear and see. I've been doing some healings. You know what I've done. You know everything I've done. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just evoke experience. He also brings in the word of the Lord. He brings in Isaiah. And he starts quoting text to the disciples of John. In their moments of doubt, they need the word of God. And this is what he says. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. Now, just if you're, you know, if you're. I have an amazing memory, and you've been tracking with us through chapters 8 and 9. You're thinking, that's like the exact same order it happened in chapters 8 and 9. I know all of you are thinking that, and you're exactly right. That's what Matthew's trying to do as he's writing this in chapter 11. He's warning us all to remember, that's the exact same order in 8 and 9. Jesus must be the Messiah. I mean, this is amazing. That's the whole point of the book of Matthew. Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom the Old Testament is completely pointing towards. And then he says this, um... He says, cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And so he's quoted different Isaiah passages. And then Jesus quotes to the disciples this text. uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61. He goes to Isaiah 61 and he says, the poor have good news preached to them. So he's done all these healings and he says, the poor have good news preached to them. And then he stops. So they say, okay. They go back to John the Baptist and and when they go back to John the Baptist, they say, Jesus said, yes, he is. And he said, I'm supposed to tell you what we see, what we saw and heard. And what we've seen is heard is that the blind receive their sight. And John's like, okay, that that's encouraging. And it says, and the lame walk, that's good news. John's hearing that. He's like, that's ex- excellent news. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And John, well acquainted with the old Testament, is hearing these things. He's like, this is great. And then they say, and the poor have good news. And automatically, John, I'm just kind of Guessing here. John says, Oh, he's quoting Isaiah 61.1. I mean, they didn't have the numbers, but he's, I know that point of the text. I know what he's about to say. And I know what's coming after Isaiah, after he says they have the good news preached. So I want you to hear. This is this is interesting stuff, I think. Um, remember, the situation that John is in. He's in prison. In prison. 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So, the disciples are telling this. And he goes, to have good news preached to them. He's like, all right. And did he say the rest of that verse? Because the rest of the verse is, and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. No, he didn't, he left, didn't say that part. He left that part out. He said he's going to preach good news. But what about, the, I'm in prison, that's the re- No, he didn't say that part. And so, what we've seen from chapter 10 is, for those who follow Christ... Suffering may be sure to come. That your lot in life, though you are doubting, Jesus is sovereignly in control. And you might experience moments of doubt, and you might say, "This isn't how it's supposed to be. I thought it was supposed to be different." And for the, that can that can evoke in you some doubt. There's no question. It's happening in John the Baptist's life, but Jesus gives him the word, and he says, "There may be doubt as a believer, and times are going to be tough." John the Baptist, your living proof. And every single person here in your moments of doubt, Jesus is completely saying, yes, you're going to have times that might be tough. But I'm not necessarily going to get you out of prison. You might have to stay in there, whatever that would be for you, your metaphorical prison. And Jesus is saying, I'm quoting Isaiah here and I'm saying, I am calling the blind and giving them sight. I am calling the lame And making them walk. I am calling the lepers towards me. And I am cleansing them. Notice all of these healings are all spiritually applicable. In in other words, he's saying, for you that have come to Christ, I have spiritually healed you. I have spiritually made you be able to see. Your lot in life might be tough. But I am who I say I am. I've called you out and saved you. It's okay that you're doubting. But remember that I'm Christ. I mean, he's saying that. So for opposition who comes, when opposition comes in your own mind and you start doubting, Jesus is driving you to the word and reminding you, I am who I said I am and remember what I've done. I've saved you. I have spiritually saved you. The disciples hear this and they say, okay, sounds good to us. And they, John's disciples. And they go back to John to give him the news. <clears throat> and it says there in verse 7, and they went away. And whenever Jesus starts teaching, he has this little knack of drawing a crowd because he's Jesus. So he's good at that. Um, and, you know, he can be God and draw them in anyway. Um, that'll mess you up, so don't think about it that way. And it says in 7, And they went away, John began, uh, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. So the disciples went away, Jesus sees there a crowd, now he's transitioned here. Here he was saying, I've got a word for John, now he has a word about John. The disciples of John have left. He just has a crowd here and he goes, all right, crowd, I'm going to talk about John now. I want to talk about John. John's disciples have left. John's not here. However, I want to talk about John with y'all. And the reason why he has a word for them, for this, for this crowd that's there, is he wants to talk about John. We're going to see, specifically when we get into verse 11, that he is going to have some encouragement For John and anybody who follows disciples, I know John and his disciples aren't here, but you can't get around the fact that verse 11 is very encouraging. And maybe John heard this or maybe he didn't, but Matthew wrote it down, so John eventually heard it. Uh, But this is, no doubt in my mind, this section is very encouraging for people. So this is a word about his disciples. The first section, Jesus is answering the doubters. The next section, Jesus is going to encourage disciples. He's going to encourage disciples. And how he's going to do it is by speaking to a crowd about John the Baptist. You can see this. What we're going to see in 7 through 9, this crowd's jumping around, and they all have these kind of thoughts about John the Baptist. And so Jesus is going to kind of ask them three successive questions about John the Baptist. Um, And it says this, Why did you go out to the wilderness? Let's stop here and just remind what we're talking about. What is he saying when he says, Why did you go out to the wilderness? That's not just John's home. But if you look in 3:1 it says in those days John the Baptist came preaching quote in the wilderness of Judea. So Jesus is pointing them back to the time where John was baptizing and preaching repentance to everyone. He's telling everyone here to repent for the kingdom of the Lord is at hand. Come, come to Jesus. And so these people Jesus looks at him and goes, "Why'd you go out there to the wilderness?" Did you go out in the wilderness and he's kind of throwing some crazy sarcasm. He goes, "Are you Why would you go out to the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? Out in the wilderness, there's some reeds. Did you go out just to nature watch? Is that why you went out there when John's calling people to repentance? Just to look at reeds? And then another place he goes, why did you then go out to... What did you go go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Well, we're thinking, yeah, he's got got animal skins. Those are soft. Well, obviously not, because the second part says, Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. John the Baptist was definitely not in a king's house. He was crazy. And so did you go out there just to, to look at reeds and nature watch? Did you go out there just to admire John's wardrobe? Is that what you're there for? I mean, he's talking about repentance. Is that what you went out there for? And then he... He drives back into the real, the third question is the answer about why they went. Verse 9 says, And then what didn't you go out to see? A prophet. Yes. He's telling them, you went out to see a prophet. And not only is he a prophet, in the successive line of prophets, he is the prophet, the Elijah, the one who has come, the forerunner. And his point, the whole point of John, is to say, the next one, the one who comes after him, is the Messiah. So he's pointing all those people back to himself. And that's why he quotes Malachi. He goes, this is he of whom he has written, behold, I, Jesus, send my messenger before your face who prepare your way before you. I've sent John the Baptist to you. You went out to see a prophet and you did. And because you saw him, now you're looking at the Messiah. That's what Jesus is saying to him. He's drawing them all in. He's wanting to encourage the disciples. But he's helping the people that are there, the crowd to see that he's the Messiah. And then here comes the encouragement. I think this is is pretty amazing. In verse 11, it says this. Truly, I say to you, that's you know Bible language for you really need to listen. Verily, verily, I say unto you. If you grew up in the KJV world, um, that's what was for me growing up. I can't understand it. Verse eleven. Truly, I say to you, among those born among women, all right. So every person that we know has ever been born among women. That's that's pretty much everybody. So every man or woman who's ever been born of a woman, and hopefully that's all of us in the room. There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's an encouraging word right there for, for John the Baptist. I mean, he's, he's crazy. I mean, he seems crazy at least. Um, he loves Jesus, man. He loves Jesus. But he is, he's pretty encouraging. So here's the encouragement. He says, no one born among women has arisen that's greater than John the Baptist. And we're thinking, if you're, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, that's not encouraging to me. He just told me John the Baptist is the greatest. And so where does that leave me? Look at the 11b. This is for all of us. And this is where I mean the encouragement. Look at this. This is amazing. I'm going to explain it because it's confusing, I think. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist is the greatest there ever, of ever was that was born among women. Yet, the one that's least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than he. Well, how does that work? You're you're talking crazy. Like, I can't understand that. Let me Let me do my best to explain it. Commentators were... I thought, confusing um, the past couple of weeks. Uh, here's, here's how I, I, I want to try to explain it. We who live now, we live after the forerunner. We live after John the Baptist. In successive line of all the prophets, no person was in a greater position to be the one who could point to Jesus the Messiah than John the Baptist. He baptized him. If anybody has the best shot at making people know who Christ is, it's John the Baptist. He baptized him. He was the forerunner. He's the the one talked about in the the Old Testament. He He is the forerunner. So whenever he points to Jesus, then that's why he's the greatest among men, because he has, or men and women, because he has the greatest capacity, I think, to point people to Christ because he is the forerunner. And it's saying this. So now, everybody who comes after that builds upon the greatness that John the Baptist has John the Baptist is the best prophet there ever was he, he was the last one right after him is when Jesus came he has the best chance to lead people to Christ he baptized I didn't did you baptize Jesus I did not baptize Jesus so like he's got a pretty good like place to say I baptized Jesus so that's why he is the greatest among all and then but then it says the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Meaning, every work we do, every work we do when we tell people about Christ, we don't have the, the place that John the Baptist had. He was... The forerunner. He baptized Christ. We lived 2,000 years afterwards. It was very easy, I think, in, in some respects, I mean easy is relative, to point people to Jesus if you're John the Baptist. We live 2,000 years later. So when we tell somebody about Christ, it's a di- more difficult task than John the Baptist. And so because of that, whenever we tell them and they come to Christ, we're building upon the greatness that John the Baptist has been given and building upon that, that's how we're earning this or getting this this title or this, this encouragement from Jesus, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than he. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's encouraging. If, if you understood that, which I know that was really insane. Somebody you know, smarter than me can explain that better, hopefully. But you can find me afterwards if you understand it. But I think that's incredibly encouraging. Incredibly encouraging. So here's the takeaway, which I think is the most important point. The point is this. John the Baptist did his job He came as the forerunner. He he had to live out in the wilderness and eat bugs and wear animal skins, but he did his job. He pointed people to Christ. That's what his job was. And so, for us, are we doing our job? The encouragement goes out to the people who are pointing people to Jesus. That's why it went out to John, and that's hopefully why it goes out to you. If you're pointing people to Christ, then you're doing your job. Are you... If you are pointing people to Jesus, like John the Baptist, you should be encouraged. You're building upon His greatness. If you're not pointing people to Jesus, then you need to be courageous. If you are, be encouraged. If you're not, be courageous. That's what the point is here. And it's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. We see that right after that in verses... um, 12 and and kind of down through 15. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. People are opposed to the kingdom moving forward. It will be difficult for all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, interesting language, uh, we don't have tons of time on that, but it's just very, very interesting language. Um, He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Ends with that metaphor saying, if God has granted you the ears to hear this, let him hear. You should be encouraged, and you should be calling people to Christ, the way John was. It's difficult for you now than it was for him, but that's the takeaway. And that's the encur- that's, I think that's encouraging. As you're doing that, you're earning this, this truth that's given to us in 11b, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, as you do your job as a follower of Christ. Now, um, Jesus, remember, in verse 7, it says, As they went out, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. Keep that idea right there as crowds. And we're going into 16. And Jesus is still speaking to the crowds. So we move into the third ones, where Jesus has a word for the crowds. He has a word for the crowds. He, he was talking to the crowds before, but it was about John the Baptist. Now he's talking to the crowds about the crowds. And he has a word for them. And as he has a word for them... You can see in verse 16, it says, but what, um, to what shall I compare this generation? The crowd is this generation that he's living in, and really for us. Um, Jesus is wanting them to see his deep heart for them. He's wanting them to see how much he cares about them. It's going to take a little digging for us to see that, but I want you to see the heart of Jesus for them. But to what shall I compare this generation? There's so many similarities in this generation he's referring to and our generation, and really, probably every generation. He says, this generation, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces. They're immature. They don't know what they're talking about. They're hard-hearted. I I have four children. And I can, I can... Two, four, six, eight, pretty much, almost. And, like, I can tell them something 25 times. And the 26th... I, I'm still wondering, like, what at what age do children start learning to flush the toilet? I don't know. Like, you can tell them over and over and over. And you're like, my goodness, are you kidding me? Like... And God's kind of looking down at me, saying, "Yeah, I, I tell you 50 times, and then the 51st you do it anyway." So, like, I know, you know, I'm, I'm j- ignorant and hard-hearted, just like a child. But He's looking at these children, and He's saying, "How am I going to compare them? This generation, they're children. They're so immature." And as they're immature, they're sitting there and they're calling to their playmates. They're calling out to the rest of the immature people. And they're saying, hey, come over here and join with this immaturity. And join and diving into this world. There's so much pleasure here. Be like us. And Jesus looks at them and he's saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. And you're thinking, what the world does that mean? I'm thinking the same thing. I don't understand what that means. This is what it means. And as you understand verse 17, I'm telling you, you're going to see Christ's heart for these people. Look down at 18 and 19, and it's going to help us understand 17. All right? Verse 18 is about John, and it says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. So John's over on this side, and he is an ascetic. An ascetic is someone who does not take of anything he wears animal skins and eats bugs he doesn't indulge he doesn't exercise freedom he's an ascetic he fasts from everything he's on this side of the spectrum trying to do the work of the lord really abstaining from all the things of the world he lives in the wilderness and eats bugs he's on that side and jesus is kind of putting himself on the other side because john did this and you say he's a demon He does without everything that you think that you should do. And then 19, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. So I'm on this side. I'm not like John. Jesus saying, he's on this side, and he's he's actually partaking of liberty. He's eating and drinking. And you call John a demon, and you call Jesus, they're saying you call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. Now let's take those two comparisons and stick them in verse 17, and you're going to see. It says, We played the flute. The flute in the first century was a, was a thing that was um, customary to be in a wedding where there was indulgence, where there was liberty, where there was much eating and drinking, kind of symbolizing for us a wedding, Jesus. And then on the other side, you see, we sing a dirge. A dirge is customary in the first century for a funeral, death, asceticism, abstaining, we're doing, and so Jesus is saying, we are both on both ends of the spectrum, we're doing what we're trying to do, if you went to a wedding, someone played a flute for you, that's what they're supposed to do, and yet your response is nothing, I'm, let's say Jesus is saying, I'm coming here, and I'm, I'm exercising my freedoms, I'm eating, and I'm drinking, and I'm hanging out with sinners, and you call me, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and yet whenever I'm Playing the flute for you, that's what I'm supposed to do at a wedding. You're not dancing. I'm telling you about Jesus, and I'm exercising my freedoms. I'm hanging around sinners, and yet your response is, you're not dancing, you're objecting, you're opposing, you're pushing Christ away. And on the other side, it says, John's coming to you as an ascetic. He's singing the dirge. That's what he's supposed to do at a funeral. And you're having the same response as John comes, doing what the way he we're both coming at you with every single angle. We want you to come to Christ. We want you to know who he is and there 's opposition at both ways. We come to you with a flute. You push us away and you don't dance. We come to you with a dirge. You push us away, and you don't mourn. We're coming at you with everything we can and the opposition just comes up and the world, the children, the ignorant, sitting on the side, lost people of the world are just pushing them away and opposing them. And he has a word for them. He's saying, we're coming at you, exercising freedoms, coming at you, abstaining from the world. We're doing what we're supposed to do. Just as it's saying in the flute, there's supposed to be a wedding, in the wedding and the funeral is supposed to be a dirge, and your response is opposition. No. And Christ is showing them his heart, he's saying, I'm begging you with tears. I'm coming at you with everything I can because I'm wanting to you, for you to respond, whether it's through indulgence or through abstention, all you're saying is he's a demon. He's a a tax collector and a sinner. He's a friend of sinners. And Jesus is wanting us to see that we are to be just like John and Jesus. No matter which person we're trying to save, whether it's the legalist or the libertine, that we're supposed to go to them with tears in our eyes and say, you're acting like children. You're hard-hearted. You're immature but we want you to come to Christ. Now don't miss this. Okay, here's, here's the most important thing as I want you to hear it, when he's going to them. You have to point out their hypocrisy. That Whichever way Christians try to tell them about Jesus, they, they reject. The loving thing to do is to point out the hypocrisy. That's what Christ is doing. But as you're pointing out the hypocrisy, they need to see that you love him. You can see this where in 28, as he's, saying we're doing everything we possibly can to tell you to repent and come to Christ. I'm sending out missionaries. I'm sending John. I'm coming myself. I'm doing everything I can with every possible means. And you're rejecting me. Jesus is still saying, I'm pointing out the hypocrisy. And then my next next message after I do that is 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. You're wasting your life being a child on the playground and calling more playmates to indulge in your... In your sinful behavior, he's saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle. I'm lowly in in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So for us who are attenders of remedy in this generation, the point is this there are people who are broken and lost sinners. And they may seem to be having put together lives through religiosity, or they may just be sinners. I mean, wicked, willful, yes, I'm a sinner. And Christ is calling us both to be broken and deeply saddened for both of them to know Him. And He's calling for all of us to have a deep heart and compassion for them. Not just, you're a wicked child sinner, Just wanted you to know your hypocrisy. You need to do that, but you need to do it in a loving way. And then you say, come to Christ. They need to see your gentle, loving compassion for them. Notice in 19, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, and look, look at this, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's a friend of sinners. Let's say you pulled out your cell phone and you looked through your contacts. How many sinners, how many unbelievers are you going to see in there? Are you a friend of sinners or is everybody in your phone boat a Christian pretty convicting very convicting for me it's something I'm dealing with and I'm saying let's deal with this together let's repent of this together if that's you Christ is saying that he wants us to be A friend of sinners. And he ends with this. He ends with this uh, proverb. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Yet God's wisdom is justified. Or vindicated by her deeds. Or Luke 7.35 in the same kind of parallel passage says. By all her children's deeds. So Jesus will be vindicated. Or shown to be justified. Or shown to be true. By looking at the children of Jesus or the followers of Jesus by the deeds they do. And if they live out the way that Christ has told us to live, then he has been vindicated. He has been shown to be justified. God's wisdom is, is being displayed and shown to be perfect and true if we, as his followers, live out what he's told us to do. <laughs> Man, that's so convicting So, I want to conclude this way. Opposition, more than likely, if you're a follower of Christ, is coming in a lot of different ways. Some of it might be internal or external, some of it might be internal. And if opposition is coming through the form of doubt, Jesus is answering that doubt with his word, and he's saying, with this beatitude, blessed is the one who follows Jesus. And the opposite is true. Cursed is the one who doesn't. He's also saying opposition might be coming. And so as a follower, you need to be encouraged. Jesus is wanting to encourage His true disciples, His true followers. And He's saying when they oppose you, the disciples that are really followers of Christ need to stand firm in Jesus and they need to be broken for the very people that are opposing them. And we need to carry out the same job as John the Baptist, where he did his job, and we should be doing it too. And if we're listening to Christ, he who has ears, let him hear, we're hearing Christ say, this is how we're supposed to live our lives, then we will be broken for him. And if opposition is coming from the generation that we live, the, the children sitting around us, Jesus is showing... This generation that might oppose him just how much he loves them, in two ways. By showing them their hypocrisy. By being children who are just wasting their life, immature. But also by pleading with them not to remain as immature children. But to see that he loves them, that he's trying to win them with us. Living out our lives before them. And we should be the one who are going to play the flute for them and beg them to dance. To play the dirge for them and ask them to mourn. And the way that God has wired you, you are supposed to be reaching out to them. And however, and we want to see them appropriately respond. But they will never appropriately respond if you do not do your part. And you're going to when you're broken for them. If if you're not broken for lost people, then you're probably just going to look like one of the children. And this, this is what God's been dealing with me over the last couple weeks, is, you know, I go every once in a while um, two weeks without preaching. You know, I have somebody preach for me and I go two weeks. But this this last two weeks I had God do more in my soul than most normal two weeks. It's, it's easy in some cases really to be bold in a pulpit. It's way more difficult to be bold outside the doors. And that's what He's been dealing with me. And so I'm I'm saying, together, let's say, we don't want to be that way. We want the people that don't know Jesus, the children, begging playmates to come join with them in their lostness, to see our heart and compassion for them, and beg them to come to know Christ. All of this is only made possible by the message we carry. By the gospel. I heard someone say this this week. It's awesome. If the cross and resurrection is not true, well, then we're wasting our life. You're just wasting your life. You might as well go do something else. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But because the cross and resurrection is true, nothing can stop us. Oh, that got me pumped up when I heard that. I'm like, yes, let's go do it. Like, I was so encouraged. Nothing can stop us because the cross and resurrection is true. And that's what he's calling you in. We carry the most important and most wonderful message ever. The gospel that God himself has made a way. We were lost in sin and God came to us and died for us. And the father put all of the, ju- all the wrath that was supposed to be for us on his own son. And every single sin you've ever committed, every, all the punishment that you were supposed to have was all put on him. You now stand, if you put your faith in Christ, completely righteous. There is no more punishment. There is no more, well, I hope he's not going to hold this against me. Nothing. You are completely righteous. That's the message you carry. That's empowering. Nothing can stop us because the resurrection is true. And so we go and we say to people, come to Christ. Everyone who's laboring, who's heavy laden, Jesus will give you rest. Let Jesus take your yoke. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Learn from Him. Jesus is gentle. He's lowly in heart. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Amazing. So we're going to pray now and we're going to respond in a couple of different ways. First, we're going to respond through the Lord's Supper, remembering of this gospel we just talked about, specifically through his body broken and his blood shed. And then we'll worship together. Let's pray. God, God, I should be far more stunned by your wonder than I am. But, but I want to be. We as a church want to be. Help us, Lord. As we turn now in response through the taking of the Lord's Supper and through worship, God, Would you do what you promised? Would you send the Holy Spirit as our teacher to awaken our minds to the truth of the gospel and to awaken even deeper affections for Jesus? Help us play our part well. Help us have a deep love for the children calling playmates to join them. May that break our hearts and we go to them with tears in our eyes and a trembling voice and beg them to see Christ. Not because we feel like it's our duty, but because we love them the way that you love them. We love you, Father. We ask that as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would guide us and that we would only hope in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.